If you haven't already, go ahead and start making your way back to your seats. Uh, as you do so, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians 1. We're going to be starting in verse 15. For those who don't know me, my name is Neil Clodson. My wife and I are members here at BBC. Um, it's just a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. I apologize in advance if I'm sniffling or, or sound a little hoarse. Uh, I'm like most of you. I'm getting over this cold, but God is good, even when we're sick. Um, So a few truths that we have to establish as we begin today. Um, First is this, all men have discernment and understanding between good and evil. They have some understanding and discernment. And this understanding is not enough to lead us to God. Our selfishness and sin warp and pervert our consciences. And we direct our thoughts, attitudes, and even worship to ourselves rather than our Creator. Nevertheless, God has engraved on our hearts and minds a conscience so that we know right from wrong by God's design. Romans 1 makes this clear, and His invisible attributes can be clearly seen from what is made. By this, we are condemned without excuse. Our own thoughts condemn us. We excuse and ignore our consciences in a million different ways, but we know that we are without excuse or hope of salvation. We stand condemned by our own conscience, perverted as they are, but our understanding does not save us. When it comes to salvation and crying out to God, we are blind fools. Without God's divine predestination, calling, justifying, sanctifying, and ultimately glorifying, we are doomed by our sin to go on violating God's law and our own conscience, blind fools stumbling our way to hell and bragging about how wise we are the whole way. Our, our oldest son, Gus, he goes to Cedars Christian School, and he likes, he's told me that their, their principal, Dwayne likes to, to tell the kids, we're all stupid sheep. And it's true. Right? We're stupid sheep. And so then the next truth is infinitely precious, that God loves his stupid sheep. God, in his infinite love and mercy, saves and preserves his people we're going to be in Ephesians 1, and, and, and this chapter is one of the most eloquent and powerful descriptions of God's work in our salvation. Paul tells us that God has lavished on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and pleasing to him. God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. He gave us redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, and lavished upon us all the riches of his grace. And, and all of that is just in verses 3 to 7. How incredible is God's grace. But then verse 8 tells us that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So part of God's work in our salvation is his making known to us, his divine revelation 
And this is both general and personal. Generally speaking, God has made known to his people his plan for the fullness of time in history and in Scripture. He prophesied about it ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, and he set the scene leading up to Christ ever since. But then, of course, Christ comes, and God lays all his cards on the table and reveals the mystery of his will. And we experience this now after the fact when we read and study Scripture, God's unfolding plan of salvation with Christ at the center. However, this isn't just a, it's not an academic experience that happens just as you study scripture. There's a reason that Paul calls the knowledge of God a secret and hidden wisdom in 1 Corinthians. Remember, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We're blind sheep. And we're not going to grasp and understand the mystery of his will by our senses and our experience. We're not going to glimpse God's purpose by our intuition and our logic either. How then? Only because God has made known to us the mystery of his will. When God saved you, he accomplished many things. And one part of that, he gave you divine knowledge. So that you, to an extent, understand the very nature of God's will. You were given access to secret knowledge, known beforehand only to God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Even the angels didn't know, but God made known to you when he saved you. Your knowledge of God's saving work and will isn't just head knowledge, it's divinely given knowledge. But, Here's the thing. We're still stupid sheep. Okay, the last time I, uh, the last time I preached, I think I, I told you you were doing well today. I'm calling you stupid. Um, I try to balance. And it brings me to the point I want to make here as we look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1. We are stupid sheep, and we needed God to make known to us salvation. And we must humble ourselves and confess that we desperately need God's help in understanding the deep things of God as we grow. We must grow in our knowledge of God and our position in Christ, and we need God's help to do it. So let's read our passage and let's pray. It's Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. God, how good it is that you love us, that you have saved us, that you have made known to us the mystery of your will, that you have lavished upon us all the riches of your grace. God, we confess that our eyes are so often dull to the wonders of your will, to the wonders of your grace and mercy, God. We are so often content to be blind, ignorant fools, worried about the things of this world and indifferent to the things of heaven. Help us, God. Open our eyes. May we behold again the wonder of your majesty. May we remember our position in Christ and rejoice that we are yours. Help us this morning, God. We come in weakness and trembling. Give us strength, O Lord. Give us ears to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul has declared to the Ephesians the wonderful scope of God's work, and now he prays that they would understand it, right? Here's what God has done for you. Now I pray that you would understand it. And then in chapter 2, Paul again, he declares the gospel, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. And in chapter 3, Paul again prays that they would understand it, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So twice, Paul prays for the Ephesian church that they would know and understand. Now keep in mind, right, he writes here, he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. These are godly men. These are believers that Paul is praying for. So don't they know? Don't they know the hope to which God has called them, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Don't they know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe. And of course they do, and, and yet Paul prays for them more and more to know. And what this passage gets at, and why it's so precious, is because it gets at the heart of Christian growth. Right? We must understand. We need divine help to understand who we are in God's eyes because of the precious work of Christ. Why? Well, so that, as Paul writes... Later in Ephesians, we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul makes clear to them and prays that they would understand their position in Christ so that their practice would match. It's why Paul in 2 Corinthians can call the Corinthians holy and then tell them to cleanse themselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And this is Christian growth. Right? It's a process only possible by God's holy work of becoming who you already are in Christ. Your position in Christ is one of perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, eternal and unchanging. Now in this life we must strive, only possible by God's holy work, to make our practice equal our position. 
Paul knows that if we do not understand our position in Christ, we will not proceed with correct hearts and motives in our practice of holiness. I'm a child of the king. Second Peter calls us partakers of the divine nature. We're one with Christ Jesus. He lives in us and through us. This is accomplished. It's done. Colossians 1, Paul tells us to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You who are in Christ, you're already qualified. You've done it. Or more specifically, Christ has done it for you. So we must understand our position in Christ so that our practice of godliness might match it. One comparison I read that was helpful is thinking of the difference between a tadpole and a baby, a human baby. Right, A tadpole starts as a blob with a tail and then you know, over time, pop, out comes the legs, the arms, right, it grows and, and eventually you get a frog. Whereas, you know, of course, a human baby is is born complete. We don't, you know, like, honey, come quick. He's grown a leg. You're born complete, perfect, all your parts there. Right now you must grow. You must mature. And you are not a spiritual tadpole. You are not becoming a new creation in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. Now you must grow and mature. Right? You're already qualified. You're already fit for God's kingdom. Nothing you can do will make God love you more. He loves you perfectly. If you are a Christian, nothing you can do, no manner of growth, can make your position better. And there's great danger in thinking that you can. That's what Paul has warned us so much about in in Galatians that we've been going through, right? How dare we take what was begun by grace and try to curry favor by our works? But when you understand your position in Christ, when you understand the resources you have in him, it will profoundly impact your practice of godliness and holiness. When you understand that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that you've been predestined for adoption of sons through Christ Jesus, that you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses that he has lavished upon us. Don't you love that word? He's lavished upon you all the riches of his grace. That he's made known to you the mystery of his will. That in him we have obtained an inheritance That when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When you realize that all of this that's said in Ephesians 1 is true of you, that all of this is true of your position in Christ, that ought to profoundly transform how we live in Christ. You are a saint And you will always be a saint. Now live like it. And it should profoundly transform how you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you realize that the (laughs) that your brother and sister who their sins and their weaknesses just make it so hard to love them? Do you realize that they are a saint 
that they are qualified just like you by nothing they've done to share in the kingdom of light? Do you realize that you are rubbing shoulders with and getting irritated by and putting up with saints in Christ? The people you love are saints and they are complete in Christ. So as you rebuke your brothers, as you love them, as you forgive them, remember they have been lavished with the same grace that you have been lavished with. So love them in all humility. And so let's look at Paul's prayer. This is a sweet prayer for a, for a church. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this isn't the Holy Spirit he's asking God to give. Right? The Holy Spirit already dwells in us. However, the Spirit does grant us both knowledge and wisdom by working in us to help us know and understand the hidden wisdom of God. So God, through his Spirit, gives us revelation, right? the profound knowledge of God's work in us and all of history, and he gives us wisdom, the use of that knowledge. And so Paul prays for God to grant the Ephesians knowledge and wisdom. And then he says, he prays that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Church, can we, can we be humble? Can we confess that the eyes of our hearts are often dull? And we don't see as we ought a lot of the time. Whether you've followed after Christ for 10 minutes or 10 years, the truth is that we are often dead to the spiritual things of God. Be humble enough to see how desperately you need God to continually enlighten the eyes of your heart. You need the power of God to lift your weak eyes from the things of this world to focus on the magnificent truths of your position in God's kingdom. And only through this divine work can you ever understand your position in Christ so that you might walk in a manner worthy of that to which you were called. Be humble enough to cry out to God, knowing you need his grace and his mercy to open up your eyes. that you would not be blind, but that you would behold the majesty of the work of God. And let's be really honest with ourselves. The knowledge that we so often long for and pursue with our time and our energy is, is often worthless. All right, guys, your, your fantasy football team is not worth the hours you spend pouring over them and analyzing them and discussing them. Your new hobby that you've latched onto is great. But would you lift up your eyes? And would you long to know God? Women, you know your kids and your husband, and you're always considering their wants, their needs, how you might manage your household better. And there's so much about this that is commendable and worthy of praise certainly more than your husband's new obsession with disc golf or crypto or whatever. 
But if you do not prioritize humble pursuit of God, you will live your life as a Martha. (coughs) Anxious and troubled about many things, but dull to the one thing that is necessary. And so pray. Pray that God would help you to choose the good portion which will not be taken away from you. Pray, church, that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart. And so Paul prays for three things, three what's. And to say that I will only scratch the surface of these is is an insult to scratching the surface. But I, I pray that you would, would you please meditate on these things this week? Would you pray over them? Would you pray it for yourself and for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And so first, he prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So the first what is what is the hope to which he has called you. And this hope, of course, has been laid out in verses 1 through 14. God has called us to his kingdom as saints and into his family as his own adopted children and co-heirs with Christ. This was not the calling of a God scrambling, trying to make a plan on the fly. God has called us to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. And this hope has been in place before the foundation of the world. Could there be a greater thing to know? That we in all our sin, all our failures, all our weaknesses have been called from ages past to a living hope. The living hope that is only found in Christ. That our suffering, our heartaches, our griefs, our persecutions, all of these are subordinate to the great hope we have in Christ. Does it not change our whole existence? Our hope began in an eternity past and will carry us into eternity future, worshiping forever at the throne of God. This only begins to touch on all the precious hope we have in God. And yet, how easily we become deadened to this. How easily we are distracted by the cares and sorrows of this world. Would you pray this then for yourself? And would you pray this for your brothers and sisters in Christ? God, would you continually enlighten me to the hope to which you have called me? Because as God does so, everything changes. Your griefs can and should be reframed forever by the magnificent hope of God's eternal gospel. Your sorrows are swept up in the plan of God of which you are a precious, predestined part. Is this hope not worth having? Is it not worth striving for or even suffering for? What cost is worth the counting if we only receive this precious living hope? The hope to which we are called to in the resurrection of Christ changes everything. And we need God's divine work to open our eyes to this hope over and over and over again. 
So the first hope, the hope, or the first what? What is the hope to which you have been called? And then this, the second, what he says, I pray that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we are, who are in Christ are God's saints. And here we see that in us are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. And I just, I wish I had words to expound the glory of this passage. Would you pray over it? Would you think over it this week? Consider that God's saints are his glorious inheritance. Now, how can that be? The whole world is God's and everything in it. All things are his. And yet, we are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Deuteronomy 32.9 says the Lord's portion is his people. Can you comprehend this? No, you cannot. And I cannot unless God continually enlightens our hearts. You are precious to your Lord and God. Everything God has made cost him nothing. All of creation God brought into being with a word. And it was done. But to create even one saint cost God incarnation, a life of suffering and a bloody death. Spurgeon put it this way, he says, As the Lord looks over all that he has made, he sees nothing that has cost him suffering and death till he comes to his people. Jesus knows what the saints will cost him. He estimates them at a rate usual among men, for men say the price is what it will fetch. And Jesus knows what his people fetched when he redeemed them by giving himself for them. Measured by that standard, God hath indeed riches of glory in his inheritance in the saints. How precious is God's love for us, church. And consider again, if we are God's rich inheritance, how richer still then is our inheritance in God. Right, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And if this is true, and it is, what price is not worth paying that we might inherit the kingdom of God? To the extent we avoid sorrow and persecution in order to be loved by the world, to that extent we do not believe the kingdom of God is a worthwhile inheritance. To that extent we are deadened to this precious truth and we need God's help to open our eyes. And so would you pray, church, that God will help you to know this. That he would open the eyes of your heart to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you would know how precious you are to God and how precious he is to you. How this would grow in you a heart that longs for godliness and holiness. What a call to righteousness that you are beloved by God, treasured by him, that he is infinitely precious to you. And the final what then? See it there in the text. What is the immeasurable 
greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now this ought to humble us, right? And ought to encourage us too. Right? Consider that in the act of saving and sanctifying of any one person, God exhibits the same great power that he demonstrated when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So consider yourself. Consider yourself so wicked. Consider yourself dead in your trespasses and sins. You are condemned to eternal hell. And to save you would be as impossible as raising the dead. Well, how wonderful then that we serve a living Christ. And we serve a God who raises the dead. We see here that all things were put under Christ's feet. Not some things, not a few things, all things. That he's above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Powers of darkness opposed him. But Christ has conquered all. And there's no power at work in Christ's resurrection and ascension and reign that is not presently at work within you. The resurrection power of God is waiting to raise the adulterer from his immorality, the murderer from his hateful anger, the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, the selfish husband from his laziness and lovelessness, the domineering wife from her gossip and bitterness. Would you reject despair then, church? The God who raised Christ from the dead is working in you and you must submit to his divine power. Be willing to let go of the sin which ruins you. Be willing to learn the truth which will renew you. Be willing to sit at Jesus' feet and accept a finished salvation at his hands and all the power that is needed to carry you safely and triumphantly to the gates of eternity is yours in God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart. That you may know the power of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. I cannot preach on so precious a passage of scripture without pleading with those of you who are living in rebellion against God. You are living in willful blindness and rebellion against a holy God. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, but you are loved by the God who raises the dead. The unlimited reserves of God's power 
will be brought to bear either in wrath against you for your continued rebellion against your God and King or in unlimited grace and mercy for you because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I pray that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart, that you would know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Please don't leave without talking to me or one of the pastors or elders. We would love to talk with you and pray with you that you may know the God who loves you. And in closing, church, would would you humble yourselves and would you pray? Pray for yourself and pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is certainly my prayer for you. It's your pastor's prayer, your elder's prayer. I pray that you would know more and more the hope of God's calling. I pray that you would not neglect this hope, but that you would cling to it like a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. I pray that you would know more and more the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That you would know that you are not your own, but that you were bought with a price so that you might glorify God. Your joy and glory is found only in belonging to Christ. And lastly, I pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in you so that you would reject despair, that you would put on the full armor of God and fight the good fight of holiness. You are in Christ. You are his treasured possession. He is your reward, and he is your living hope. He will never stop working for your good and your holiness. So hope in him. Humble yourselves and live for his glory. Let's pray. God, you are our sun and our shield. No good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. There is nothing needed for life and godliness which you have not lavished upon us. All our hope is in you, and we need you every hour. Help us, God, to cling to you. Help us to humble ourselves and give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.